0: Welcome to On Olive Oil, hosted by Curtis Cord, the publisher of Olive Oil Times. Featuring 30 minute discussions with people throughout the world, sharing their unique perspectives on the ever changing olive oil landscape. This week's guest is research scientist
1: Luigi Ponti. If we don't make any effort to conserve what's still there in terms of cultural practices, it would be a waste of time to just promote the Mediterranean diet and simply as a set of recipes.
0: Now, from New York City, here's Curtis Cord. Record-breaking droughts, fruit flies that survive unusually mild winters to ravage in the spring, and pathogen outbreaks like the one in Puglia that has claimed more than a million olive trees. It might seem like climate change could spell the end of the olive oil world. But not so fast, says Luigi Ponti, a research scientist at Italy's National Agency for New Technologies, Energy, and Sustainable Economic Development. His research on the effect of warmer temperatures on the olive sector has been published in scientific journals and provides a valuable framework for continued studies on this important topic. And like so many complicated issues, when we ask, what will climate change mean to olive oil producers around the world? The short answer is, well, that depends. He joins us today from Rome. Luigi, welcome to On Olive Oil. Thank you. Your studies result from an international collaboration between ENEA, which is the Laboratory for Sustainability, Quality, and Safety of Agricultural Food Production based in Rome, CASAS Global NGO, and the University of California at Berkeley. And speaking of international collaborations, just last month, 196 countries finally approved after a series of failed attempts in recent years and historic pact to slow the pace of climate change. Were you following the deliberations in Paris?
1: Yes, uh, I've been following uh, what has been happening in uh, in Paris, and not just lately, but the whole debate that goes on around the uh, UN fr- uh, Framework Convention of Climate Change and the series of report that ITCC, the Inter- Intergovernmental panel on climate change has been putting together over the course of of the last uh, years. And they represent the consensus of the scientific community of what's going on in terms of climate change uh, both the the physical, scientific part, what the effects of it on our planet are and the interaction with the human system and the natural systems, uh, they've been looking better uh, over the course of the time uh, at this and our knowledge has improved. If I have to pick uh, the key issue for ecosystems because agricultural fields are ecosystems uh, in the end and nothing less and nothing more. I think the the key issue here is complexity. So when studying ecosystems in in general and agriculture ecosystems in particular, the main barrier to understand them, and that means the main barrier to manage them, is complexity. Climate change is just another uh, additional level of complexity uh, that is on top of of the rest of the biological and physical layers that you have. And it, it just makes it, harder to manage them because you have certain assumptions based on which you, you try to manage uh, an olive field, for example, an olive growth. And those assumptions are challenged by the, this change. So it was very to the point in your introduction when you said that it depends what the effects are.
0: Of course, one of the results of such an accord is that it paves the way for innovation. There are expected to be a lot more funds allocated for research related to environmental modeling. Just this morning, in fact, a New York Times editorial urged the following. As available water and growing seasons shift further and threats of invasive weeds, pests, and pathogens rise, now more than ever, we need to embrace 21st century science, fund it, and turn it loose so we can develop better methods of putting food on the table. Our world is changing the New York Times said. The way we grow and produce food needs a much richer diet of scientific ingenuity to keep pace. Luigi, do you and the rest of your team have the sense that you're in the right place at the right
1: time? We do. Specifically for Enea, we are a very interdisciplinary research center that focuses broadly on energy and the environment. So since the beginning we have kind of turned loose on the disciplinary boundaries that usually constrain environmental research in general. At least in Italy, this is the case. Hmm. And I think that for climate change in in general, one problem is that uh, there are established ways for uh, the climate science people to look at what happens on a planetary level for the climate system for example, you have set of uh, global climate models that are being run uh, systematically by the climate community, the climate uh, science community, and they they make projections of what's going to happen in terms of the, of the climate system for the future. And based on that, they make recommendations that form the basis on which people in Paris discussed, right? Right. Uh, but for ecosystems, that's not the case. There aren't standard ways to look at ecosystems. Uh, from a scientific uh, point of view. And the main uh, barrier, the main constraint is that uh, beyond all the complexity that is embedded in the climate system, you would have to represent uh, the complexity of natural systems. So it's very difficult to do, and the, the reports of the intergovernmental panel of climate change say that very clearly that when you look at ecosystems, the main problem is that you can not factor in interactions in a mechanistic way. That means you, you cannot summarize what's going on in the field when species interact to each other. And this is what we have attempted in the study you referred at the beginning of the interview. There's a bunch of species that we call biodiversity that interact to each other and with the climate. And each of them have different requirements for growing uh, developing, reproducing, and the climate affects the way they survive or, or die. So it's a set of nonlinear uh, interactions that it's difficult to project in the future.
0: Right. So that's the predictive model based on physiological analogies across the food web to, right. p- to predict the cost of climate change on olives. Uh, Can you explain the model in a way even I can understand?
1: The basic idea is to look at every organism as if it were a consumer. So in an economic sense, you have certain priorities, you have to acquire resources, and then once you have acquired those resources, you have to allocate them uh, according to a certain priority. And it turns out this priority is the same Across the food web. So regardless of the fact uh, you are an animal, a plant, or a top predator, you have the same priorities. What changes is the shape of the mathematical function that describes uh, these processes. But in, in the essence, you can describe any organi- organism at the physiological level with the same model. So acquisition of resources and allocation of, of, the, of those like it would be food uh, or organic matter uh, or for a plant it would be acquiring the light from the sun, then you, you, have to, you have to allocate those resources and you do it the same way, with the same priorities, regardless of, of, of the kind of uh, organism you are on this planet. And this simplifies computationally, I mean, it's easier to describe the organisms that way, and also it tells you what's going on by ecological analogy. You kind of know what's going on uh, in in the underlying dynamics, and it it helps you understand uh, the interactions and the processes that are occurring in the field.
0: So based on the model's predictions, you and your fellow researchers estimate that with the warming expected by around mid-century, olive tree yield will actually increased across the region, the Mediterranean region, by 4.1%. Fly infestation will decrease by 8%. And net profits will increase by 9.6% on average. These figures are surprising to me. Were you surprised by the findings?
1: I was not surprised. Well, uh, the first thing to keep in mind is that this is a scenario analysis. analysis. So it's based on a, a climate scenario which is not a prediction of the future because it's, that's impossible to get right but you know that the trend we mm, reason based on the fact that there's going to be a warming and the daily pattern uh, will change and the models the climate models tell us the way this is going this is going to happen we use those data to drive a model of an ecosystem in this case uh, the an agroecosystem uh, an olive agroecosystem. And I have no assumptions of what's going to happen uh, in the future. So I, I wasn't surprised because I, I, I knew that the thermal tolerance to temperature is wider for the plant than for the fly. So I wasn't surprised that the, the, the plant would do better than the that the fly does uh, if if the climate warms. I wouldn't be able to tell you without making the analysis, what would be the outcome of the interaction of the two, of the plant and the fly, as the climate uh, uh, warms, because that entails looking at what, at what happens uh, on a daily basis and season after season, because that depends, of course, as you said uh, in, in the beginning, on the fact uh, that the, the fly survives better or um, it, do- it doesn't survive from one season to the next over the, uh, the summer Uh, And that's a, a, a matter of the daily patterns of weather and how it interacts with the plant. So that's why the model is there. Because you kind of have an idea of the to- tolerance to change in temperature of the plant and of the fly. But to get an answer of the trend over an extended period of time, uh, based on a daily pattern of weather, you need uh, an analysis tool that tells you that uh, reproduces sufficiently well the biology. And, and then the patterns that, c- that came out were, were not uh, entirely surprising because as biologists, I'm an agronomist. I know that when the, the weather is very hot in the summer... I know it's basically the same as you were treating with an insecticide against the fly. So it has the same effect. It kills uh, most of, of the population of the adults. So we, we know that. To see that, that the fly is not doing good in the southern part of the Mediterranean basin, prospectively, if climate warms, it was not surprising.
0: Well, why would you think as an agronomist that your model would predict that the yield will increase as temperatures climb.
1: That is a matter of a longer growing season. Both the plant and the fly work not on the basis of uh, our regular time scale, which is made of days and hours and minutes, but they work on the basis of physiological time. So what, what we call day degrees. That means that when it's it's warm, the biology runs faster. When it's cold, the biology runs less fast and it can arrest uh, development at certain thresholds. So that's why you get a uh, higher yield when it's warmer. And that, of course, has a threshold too for the plant, even though it's higher than for the fly. And you see that in the study when we, when we look prospectively and the changes at the changes in yield, that there are regions in the southern uh, Mediterranean basin where you have actually Decrease the yields, and that's because in those places you reach a point where the costs, and it that is basically a cost that the plant uh, sustains uh, because of respiration. As the t- temperature warms, the respiration, so the b- metabolic cost for sustaining the metabolism of the, of the plant uh, increases and it cannot be compensated by the increase in the um, organic matter that uh, dry matter that is being synthesized so there is a threshold for the tree too when it's too hot it's not going to be able to increase further the yield mm. even if you uh, add irrigation that's not going to change it uh, and it, this is an important consideration in a climate change scenario because the pattern of precipitation or the fact that you, you get irrigation water uh, will not affect the temperature cons- constraints because at a certain level, respiration will be too costly. And even a plant like olive, uh, which is uh, drought-resistant, I, I mean, it, it's taken as the probably the model uh, of drought-resistant resi- drought plant in arid climates, mm. at a certain point will close stomata. So the plant for uh, synthesizing yield needs to exchange gases with the atmosphere. So it needs to, to get CO2 and to, to use the energy of light to produce photosynthates that they go to the fruit. And that will last until it's too hot and, and the plant, to prevent uh, desiccation, to, not to die, it has to close the, the stomata, which is the little holes on the leaves that, through which the, the gases exchange occurs, after that point, no photosynthesis is possible, Hmm. that there are limits, physiological limits for the plant too, when climate warms.
0: Your analysis also predicted that profitability of olive farms in North Africa, and we're talking about Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, will increase by more than 40%. How is that possible? Is that from the extended growing period, like you said, and the inability of the olive fly to withstand hotter
1: temperatures? It's a combination of the extension of the growing season for the olive and the fact that the, the pest, the olive fly, is going uh, to have a hard time. So in the bioeconomic model we built, you get a decrease in the cost for controlling olive fly. And at the, at the same time, you get uh, increased yields and that's why you get a higher profit uh, in the end and so th- this is the basic uh, the basic dynamics that drive the the profit um, analysis uh, that we made uh, that depending on the fact whether uh, the the climate pattern you get in the future favors or, or not yields and makes you spend more money on controlling the fly or not, it, in the end you get a, an increased or decreased profit.
0: So your analysis looked at the interactions between the olive fruit fly and the olive tree as driven by the weather, but aren't there other variables that your study did not include? For example, studies predict that the summers in southern Europe will be drier as temperatures rise with longer dry spells, that would lead, I'd imagine, to a need for more irrigation of olives, which would have a a corresponding cost to farmers.
1: Right, that's right. There's a lot of variability on the ground. The way we address that, because it was not possible to reproduce via modeling all that variability or all that complexity that you find on on the ground, because you have different varieties, you have different planting densities, you have places where they give irrigation supplemental irrigation, places where they they don't. So that there's a lot of uh, different soil type, soil depth, and all these kind of things that make the system so complicated. And there's in addition to that, there's no data that allowed allowed us to simulate that complexity. We took agricultural statistics, georeference, so it's a, it's basically a map that was put together using. Data from the from FAO, FAO the Food and Agriculture Organi- Organization of the United Nations, that collects agricultural statistics worldwide. They used like a seven-year period of uh, yield uh, records, and they put it uh, georeference. It means that on a grid that. I think it was five kilometers or so. They tell you uh, what fraction of the land is covered by olive and what's the average uh, yield. In that number, you get embedded all the things that I've said before. So planting densities, the, the way they, the uh, cultural practices and varieties. And we use that as a basis that we scaled with the projections that we got running the model in the future with the climate change scenario. So that way we try to overcome this limitation. Uh, Sure that it is true that that there's a lot of variability on the ground, that it's impossible to reproduce. If you want to get an answer on a trend in the future, uh, one of the ways you go about that is using what's present right now, and then you scale it with uh, the physiological response of the plant and the fly in the future, and that way you get an answer that that is valid across the, the, the Mediterranean basin. And in, in terms of the, the drier summers that you mentioned, what uh, we assumed is that the changes in temperature and the limitations that this change will exert on yield will not be canceled by having additional irrigation water, as I told you before, because no matter how much water you have, you reach a point where the plant cannot produce more yield just by the fact that you have more water because it's a matter of the the temperature increase.
0: So as farmers follow the money, abandoning groves in some areas, you're concerned that those regions will be vulnerable to fires, erosion, and a loss of biodiversity. How does that happen?
1: Yeah, the, the main problem with that is that even smaller changes in in profit uh, will be relevant in places that are already economically and environmentally uh, marginal because they kind of of, uh, experience already a trend of abandonment. So they people, if they find a better option, they do a, a different job because it's more rewarding. And those olive groves are also the ones that are more important in terms of environmental stewardship. So regardless of the fact that they're not very rewarding in terms of the profit the the farmer make, uh, they are very important environmentally in terms of preserving the soil and protecting biodiversity. Because they're usually on, on steep land when you abandon an olive grove, the vegetation that results uh, and colonizes the the land uh, is more prone to fire because the vegetation is not longer managed. So these are the kind of problems that may occur. And this is also the reason why in Europe especially we have common agricultural policy that sustains those kind of farmers that uh, are in marginal environments and implements uh, ecologically friendly ways of uh, practicing agriculture. We pay farmers for the services that they provide to uh, the rest of the of the community, uh, because we know that the margins in terms of the market are kind of low, but we know they're very important environmentally and ecologically.
0: We talk about climate change in a futuristic sense, it seems to me, but as you know, some, some olive farms have been passed down through countless generations within a family, and when we are looking at major changes in weather conditions by 2050 or 2060. We're talking about the very next generation. Some of the children already helping with a harvest will be facing these changed conditions before they know it. Which of these farmers, I wonder, will be the ones to walk away from the olive farm? I can see the olive industry, like so many others, consolidating as environmental pressures mount, so less smaller farms and production is much more centralized. I know you worry about the cultural impact and the loss of a way of life, if that happens, because I previewed a chapter you wrote for a soon-to-be-published book titled Biocultural Diversity in Europe. Your chapter title is Preserving the Mediterranean Diet Through Holistic Strategies for the Conservation of Traditional Farming Systems. And there you wrote, The challenge in small-to-large farms is to reinstate social organization, and collective strategies in farmer communities that make full use of holistic knowledge about food systems. So what are some examples of changes you might see communities adopt armed with data from the analyses you and your team are conducting?
1: What happens is that at a certain point, uh, once you know that the more environmentally important farms uh, will suffer first from climate change, they're also the, mo- the most vulnerable. There has to be political action to address that. That can also come from uh, organization of farmers, but it will not come from the market alone. We have to realize that there are things that will not occur just because they're driven by market forces. There are things that are not appreciated, like uh, externalities, E- ecosystem services that agriculture provides, the conservation value of agriculture that are not currently appreciated by the market. And so th- there's not a, pre- a price tag on that. And only by collective action, you can move toward uh, that direction. It's, it's not only my study that indicated that direction, but th- there's a lot of evidence showing that. For example, for olive, a lot of what's going on ecologically, even in the more uh, intensive agricultural fields, like the market-rewarding crops, depends on the biodiversity that surrounds it, even below ground, which means that the 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 land that is managed more, less intensively, like it would be olive groves or the agroforestry systems that are abundant in the southern Mediterranean basin, that i mentioned in my chapter that resemble savannas they in in the be- below ground diversity i mean at the bi- microbial level they exert functions that are vital to maintain the functionality of the more productive land that is embedded in the same landscape and we, it, the, the, the evidence is growing of that and we need to realize that and we need to pinpoint that in order for the diversity of the landscape to, to survive. Because then uh, the market value, you get, uh, you get it from the cash crop, but you, you know you can get that, that yield because it's embedded in an agricultural landscape that uh, features different elements. Uh, many of these elements are not rewarding in terms of the market but are vital in terms of the functionality of the ecosystem. One of these elements is uh, probably olive and there is one thing that I'd say in the paper about the that has been shown in a couple of papers that below-ground biodiversity is as important and as the above-ground above biodiversity in terms of the productivity and maintaining the productivity and increasing the Uh, resilience of ecosystems and entire landscape to climate change. So one thing that is important to keep in mind is that when we think of agriculture and climate change, we think of landscapes. We have to think of relationships between the above, above ground and below ground biodiversity that they interact using the plant as a connector. When you want to do something useful in, in terms of climate change, especially useful, that is useful for farmers, you have to to build in resiliency in the system. And you do that by increasing also the below ground biodiversity. And that, of course, in, in by diversifying the landscape and that, of course, by keeping in the landscape key elements elements like traditional perennial farming systems like olive, for example, in the Mediterranean, which is even like isolated trees or small groves still uh, resist throughout the Mediterranean. So it's like a a fabric that unites all the landscape of the Mediterranean and has probably an ecological function that we still have to uncover, but the first evidence is coming up and it's kind of clear what is the pattern. All the uh, growth systems in in the Mediterranean uh, basin were developed over the course of centuries in an interaction of people, the, the land system and the climate, to resist a certain kind of pattern that is probably already learned to deal with drought in the past because it, that's embedded in the, in the Mediterranean climate, <laughs> that it rains very sparsely in every couple of years, probably, if you're lucky. So they, they're already doing that in the field. What they did, they made something that is very ecologically uh, sensible. So if you look at the ecological literature, you see that to build a sustainable agricultural system, you need to reproduce certain elements of the natural vegetation usually your first and better bet would be to look at the primary natural vegetation, uh, and the secondary ne- natural vegetation, which is what regrows after you cut down the, the primary forest which probably in the Mediterranean doesn't exist anymore uh, unless you go to some remote place. But it's very rare to encounter the primitive vegetation that was here. It's a landscape in a region that has experienced very deep interaction with the human system. So the olive tree, you also find it in the secondary forest in the Mediterranean basin. So it's it's a natural system, if, if you look at it closely, because it is what you find also in the, in the forest that is next to the cultivated field in the end. Mm. It makes ecological sense to have it there. The, the kind of fert- fertility that develops in the soil after centuries of having olive grows there, it's very different than if you plant uh, an olive, olive tree today.
0: Making meaningful changes require forward-thinking community planners and politicians. In my country, we can't even stop people from buying assault rifles over the internet. What are the chances communities can look forward 40 years? and make meaningful changes to preserve biodiversity and a fast disappearing Mediterranean way of life?
1: Yeah, this is a very important question, thank you. Uh, and the key message I, I, I wanted to give was that, because uh, I started from the, the statement that the Mediterranean di- diet was in recently added to the list of uh, the cultural heritage of humanity, right? But everybody speaks about Mediterra- the Mediterranean diet uh, these days in Italy, and and in uh, in Europe and probably across the world as a lifestyle that is healthy and so on but Together with that, we need to understand that dietary pattern emerged from a agricultural system. So it's the array of crops that are on the, on the ground and the way people farm the land for centuries that gave, as a result, the dietary pattern that we today call the Mediterranean Basin. And it's kind of well conserved across the Mediterranean Basin if we don't make any effort to conserve what's still there in terms of cultural practices and traditional knowledge and the way people farm the land and traditional varieties and the landscape and the way we maintain the landscape in the form it is right now, it it would be a waste of time to just promote the Mediterranean diet and simply as a set of recipes Mm. that we find in a book and we try to make ourselves in our kitchen. Mm. Because UNESCO said that already when when describing what the uh, Mediterranean diet is, the agricultural part is embedded. But yes, it's embedded, but it's disappearing, and we have to make efforts to conserve that. And that's why I mentioned in the chapter a very important FAO initiative that is called uh, Globally Ingenious Agricultural Heritage Systems. That is sort of what UNESCO does, but agriculturally, that that they try to select across the world agricultural systems that are run by local people that are irreproducible which means that if they go away, it will take another, say, 1,000 years to to redevelop the the level of knowledge and management that they uh, currently have. And this is partly, uh, at least partly, too, for olive growth in the Mediterranean Basin, I think.
0: Luigi Ponti is a research scientist for the National Agency for New Technologies, Energy, and Sustainable Economic Development in Rome, Italy, Luigi, thank you for an interesting
1: discussion today. You're welcome. Thank you for the interview. And nice to talk to you, Curtis.
0: On Olive Oil is produced in New York by Olive Oil Times, the world's leading olive oil publication. To listen to past episodes, visit onoliveoil.com.